Welcome to the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. This is episode 89 for Monday, February 5th, 2024. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's insight and perspective for members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today after contracted and sometimes contentious negotiations with his marketing agents, we finally have... Derek Felsky on with us. Derek is our Chief Investment Officer. Welcome. Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Brian Jacobson, our Chief Economist. Welcome to you. Oh, it's great to be here, especially to be on with Derek. This is just such a joy. And thanks to everybody who comes back week after week to listen. Uh, If you like what you hear, do please like, subscribe, share, do whatever you need to do to get the word out there so that this can be shared with more and more people. We really do appreciate uh, your loyalty. Let's uh, take a look at what's coming up for the rest of this week. I think it's really a light week compared to last week. We have the ISM services number. We know service sector strength has been the saving grace of the U.S. economy. And we're going to see whether or not that continues. And then on Friday, we get a data release that a lot of people historically have never really paid much attention to. But a few Fed officials have discussed it. And so now we're going to pay attention to it. To me, it's almost like Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day doesn't matter much to me, but it matters to my wife, so therefore it matters to me. Same thing applies with some of these data releases. The CPI revisions are coming out on Friday. Last year, those were a big surprise as far as showing how much more inflation we actually had. That caught the Fed off guard. We have to see, are we going to get a repeat performance of that, or maybe is it going to go in the opposite direction? Of course, we also have earnings season is continuing on. We just got done with an onslaught of earnings. And I think, you know, Derek, uh, when you're looking back at uh, last week, um, there was some pretty good signs of strength there, I think, as far as on the earnings side, weren't there? Absolutely. Um, Last week, we had a third of the S&P 500 report. We got very strong reports from key names like um, Meta, some semiconductor companies that also reported great numbers, ASM lithography, for example. Uh, we saw a good number from Procter & Gamble. Uh, so earnings season so far has done better than feared. And, you know, I, I guess that shouldn't really be a surprise because right now the Atlanta Fed is now forecasting 4% growth in Q1 after 3.3% growth in Q4. Those are incredible numbers. I mean, we're almost catching up to China in terms of the growth rate. Right. And and, I'm, and a lot of people don't really believe those Chinese figures to begin with. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, the U.S. just came out of COVID better than anybody else. Clearly, Europe still struggles. China is struggling. Uh, in fact, Germany's probably in recession. And the U.S. is sort of the best oasis to, to park your money at the present time. And the dollar was very strong this past week as well. It was. Yeah. Looking back at some of the strengths from the previous week, uh, you know, Powell was a bit of a downer with his press conference. But I think that the strength was maybe the market reaction, looking through what he said, recognizing that he's a lawyer. And so he is going to use a lot of words to say very little. And I can say that as a lawyer. So I'm basically insulting myself there. And really, the key message is, I thought that consumer confidence, consumer sentiment, it's improving, beginning to catch up to what people are actually doing, because for the longest time, there's been this great divorce between what people are doing and what they're saying about how they're feeling. One of the other strengths, I think, is that, you know, Powell basically confirmed, hey, we are at the peak for rate hikes, so we don't have to necessarily worry about the Fed hiking further and further until something breaks. Right. And and the real surprise, I mean, I've heard you talk about it a lot, Brian, was last year, the persistence of economic strength in the face of higher rates surprised many people. Most people thought we might have a recession in 2023. 
And what we've learned is as long as people have jobs and are seeing higher wages, now those wages are actually growing in real terms, Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to continue to spend. And the U.S. economy is driven by consumer spending. It is. Yeah. 68% of GDP is consumer spending. 67% of consumer spending is on services. It's just harder to get a recession unless you have some sort of crisis. And, uh, you know, obviously something could happen. And maybe that's one of the weaknesses, pivoting to that a little bit, is the idea that we had New York Community Bank Corp coming out, slashing their dividend, announcing that they needed to raise capital because they were one of these companies that went out there and last March when when we had the banking crisis, they came to the rescue of a part of Signature Bank taking on some of their deposits, but now they're paying the price for it because they have a new regulator. Their asset size has pushed them up above 100 billion. And so now they have to raise more capital. And they also have a bunch of commercial real estate exposure that is uh, perhaps a little bit worrying. So in terms of some of the weaknesses, there's still that lingering out there. And the market clearly did not like that when that news came out. Yeah, and, that, and that's the key point. You know, when, when banks consider lending money to other folks, they have to look at their loan portfolio at the same time. And that's going to retard uh, loan growth, which is one of the elixirs for the economy. Uh, the other thing, uh, you know, that I would kind of highlight as a potential weakness is because of the strong close to the end of the year and the, and the real strong start the markets have had in January and early February, returns have been pulled forward. So valuations have gone significantly higher. Most of the rally last year was due to multiple expansion, not earnings growth. Yeah. And I mean, in your experience, uh, the dynamics here between the fundamentals and the prices. I mean, I understand prices oftentimes will move before the fundamentals do because markets are forward looking. They're trying to anticipate that growth. But you do need that confirmation from the fundamentals at some point. And in terms of maybe, uh, I don't know if we can pivot to opportunities a little bit on this uh, point is, uh, are there parts where maybe the prices aren't really reflecting what those fundamentals are likely or might be? Well, I think it really depends on on what sector we're talking about. Now, in the technology sector, for example, you know, when we put individual stocks in our portfolios, we always have a conservative, a moderate, and aggressive price target. And in some cases, we've actually hit our aggressive price targets, which causes us to trim or perhaps rebalance the portfolio. And I think you can say that broadly about technology. On the other hand, the energy patch, for example, the valuations have become increasingly attractive. Oil prices have been, you know, hugging around $80 a barrel. So many of these companies are going to coin money. They're buying back shares and they pay attractive dividends. So in the case of energy, we're actually at more conservative price levels. So that's a good thing for the energy exposure. Hmm. Uh, just out of curiosity, when you've looked at the markets in the past, have you seen these types of divergences before where you have one sector where everything's close to that aggressive price target and then you have another sector or maybe multiple sectors or areas where it's closer to that conservative? Or do they all tend to kind of congregate up towards the aggressive together or down towards that conservative price target? Well, what I'm seeing is somewhat reminiscent of what I saw in 1999 and 2000. I mean, the technology sector, you know, the the AI enthusiasm has caused a select number of companies to go to extremely high multiples and with very strong uh, price momentum. And that's just left a lot behind. So, for example, on Friday, you know, the, the NASDAQ was screaming to the upside, the S&P as well. But the small cap indexes were actually down and the breadth was two to one negative. So mm-hmm. this is a market that is becoming increasingly focused on on momentum. And oftentimes that leads to uh, 
price pockets and air pockets and creates opportunities in some of the laggard sectors, particularly quality-oriented companies. Mm. You know, I was speaking to a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and uh, he was asking about that, how rates went up, but yet tech was screaming higher, and then you have small cap value down so much. And he was curious how that happens. Now, it's always easy to kind of do an autopsy. You look backwards and you just see what happened to the price and you can kind of craft your narrative around that. And so I was trying to kind of help him do that. And my take was, okay, the tech stocks, right, driven by the fundamentals there as far as with the earnings announcements that came out, especially from Meta. I mean, I think that really helped. And you also had Amazon doing well. But then trying to explain small cap value, why that would be down when everything else seems to be up. I'm curious if some of that is because of that quality, right? Is there a somewhat lack of quality in the small cap value space, a little bit more heavily indebted, lower profitability, things like that? 40% of the companies in the Russell 2000 don't make money. Mm -hmm. And at some point, they're going to need to borrow. And now they're going to have to borrow at higher rates or they're going to have to issue shares, which will dilute the shareholders and and push the prices down. So small cap is very much about being a stock picker and looking for companies that actually are generating free cash flow and have the ability to invest in AI and other technologies that will help maintain their level of competitiveness going forward. So now I have another kind of, this is going to sound like a dumb question, is quality. What does quality mean to you? I hear everybody using it. When you're looking at stocks and opportunities, what is quality? I mean, who in their right mind as a portfolio manager would say, yeah, I own a bunch of garbage. Well, sometimes garbage works, but as we all know, some people's trash is another person's treasure. And when I think about quality, I think about free cash flow. I think about profitability. I think about attractive niches where margins are high. And then on the the opposite side, I I don't like to see lousy balance sheets, lots of debt, no earnings you know, stock-based compensation and the like. That's that's the kind of thing that is a warning sign for me. But generally speaking, you know, the small caps have lagged the large caps by an incredible amount. And at some point, probably at the, in the depths of a recession, small caps will be very attractive. Mm, yeah. What about international? Do you think uh, that's an area? I mean, that that's lagged quite a bit. Uh, Germany being in effectively a recession, maybe they'll get some stability there. But uh, it seems like they have lagged the U.S. markets for quite a while. Well, as you pointed out, the central banks in Europe are set to cut rates. Um, we know that they didn't come out of COVID as strong as the United States. The valuations are extraordinarily attractive relative to the U.S. The dividend yields are higher relative to the U.S. And we've kind of got them on our watch list. You know, we have some exposure there. We are, again, following the quality theme with regard to overseas exposure. And we're just basically waiting for some trading confirmation that that money is actually going to seek opportunities there. For example, Japan is close to an all-time high, uh, which surprises many people. Uh, and China, you know, there's more vulnerability in Europe to China's weakness than there is in the United States. And at some point, perhaps that Chinese stimulus will catch and uh, we'll see a, a, a stronger tone overseas in terms of growth. Yeah, I would expect that with China's efforts to provide fiscal and monetary support that it will eventually uh, bear some fruit. It's it just seems like they've been doing it a little bit more uh, piecemeal, and it hasn't really come out in the full-blown stimulus like we saw during the global financial crisis. So maybe that's what a lot of people were kind of hoping for, is that with the reopening coming out of COVID being rather 
weak and tepid growth that they would have come out with something much bigger. But instead, they're trying to be a little bit more, well, maybe prudent when it comes to actually providing some stimulus. And eventually it will happen, I believe. Uh, they are, are facing the challenges of a declining population now. So they've got the demographics and also quite a bit of debt from all those states and local governments having raised debt for spending money on you know, those infrastructure projects, bridges to nowhere, things like that. And um, th that's maybe a little bit of an overhang to China's economy and why they didn't want to do something kind of this full bore stimulus. You know, the other thing about China is the Chinese people have a significant investment in real estate, much higher as a percentage of their net worth than we do in the United States. And real estate prices in China have been collapsing. And when, you're, when your portfolio is collapsing and you're on margin, essentially, that's going to cause you not to spend. So they've had a very difficult time uh, with that situation. We saw one you know, major uh, real estate organization had to basically go into default and liquidate. So China's got major challenges. You know, As we've often said, we'd much rather have an investment in the United States where we have free markets and transparency than a country that can be controlled. Many people think China's uninvestable, but when I hear people say that, that certainly gets me interested, but I'm not ready to pull the trigger there yet. <laughs> yeah, well, another area that people seem to think is uninvestable, uh, and you had mentioned China's real estate. What about commercial real estate in the United States, especially some of the financials, the regional banks, their exposures uh, to the commercial real estate market? Anything there that you're seeing interesting, or is it still too soon? I think it's too soon. I mean, I've, you know, I've talked to people, you know, in the business and they're writing down the value of those loans by 40, 50 percent. I don't think many banks have provisioned for that. As you mentioned, New York Community Bank Court plummeted last week. Uh, their provisions were 10 times what analysts had estimated. So I have to assume that, you know, it's kind of like the cockroach theory. If you see one, there's probably some other ones lying around somewhere. Well, yeah, and somewhere it could also be global. There was the announcement of that Tokyo-based bank having to write down their portfolio or increase their loan loss provisions because of their exposure to U.S. commercial real estate or even a big German bank where they had exposure. Real estate is always local, but it can go global when you have banks involved, especially some of the German and Japanese banks getting in there. You know, the other areas that I think are kind of interesting right now, you know, healthcare had its worst relative year against the S&P last year, down 25% on a relative basis. Consumer staples also lagged. You know, these, these obesity drugs caused many people to believe no one's going to drink Coca-Cola anymore. And then, of course, the REITs and the utilities, you know, are very interest rate sensitive. And to the degree that the Fed is going to push rates lower down the road, there might be some stabilization and some opportunities there. But again, we want to emphasize quality. You know, about 70 percent of the quality index that I track is in areas other than technology. And I think that's going to be a fertile ground for investment going forward. Any idea as far as, you know, everybody seems to be excited about artificial intelligence and, of course, going to the first layer, which is, OK, what are the companies that develop the technology? those that have the semiconductors and all that. But what about taking it down a couple layers, right? Uh, anything you're seeing there as far as uh, doing some of that second, third order thinking around artificial intelligence? Well, Salesforce has a great ad. and I think it's Matthew McConaughey, and he talks about data being gold. You know, the basic, the basic premise of AI is you train the, the device to basically read your data and provide you with workflows that perhaps can lead to higher productivity. So when you think about a company and their data, where are they going to want to put it? Are they going to want to put it on the cloud and potentially have some sort of uh, cyber attack? Or are they going to want to put it on their own PCs, keep it in-house, if you will? So I think there's going to be a 
PC cycle that will be driven by AI-related chips that are in the PC. That's going to be great for the PC provider. It's also great for the semiconductor companies, memory companies, and the rest. And also on the edge, you know, so, so, so the edge of your network. So companies like Cisco and Juniper Networks and the like ought to do very well, too. So AI is going to fuel a CapEx cycle. And I don't really think AI is going to affect the, the economy much until, say, 2025. But if, if we do generate the type of productivity gains that I've heard about, earnings in 2025 could be really, really strong. Mm, yeah, that would be an interesting opportunity there. And when I'm thinking about the massive technology upgrade that a lot of people did during COVID, 2025, you know, that's uh, getting five years out from it. That's about the time that some people think about uh, upgrading their computers and that. So timing-wise, uh, you might want to uh, take a look at those things and the technology be it will be a little bit more developed. So far, the CapEx spending that we have seen has primarily been almost front-running some of the government spending that's likely to come out from like the infrastructure and chips act and things like that so when i've dug into some of the details around capital expenditures it's about uh, people trying to basically make investments today to support where the government money is going to go in 2025 and 2026 and that's actually probably when we're going to see about the peak for government spending from the infrastructure act as far as all that investment so maybe we will be entering into a a capex cycle not just for businesses but even upgrade cycle for households well it's, it's all about onshoring we want to reduce our vulnerability to countries that are not reliable we can't allow 90 percent of the chips to be manufactured in china or 90 percent of the ingredients for key pharmaceuticals so to the degree that we move our reliance away from china and towards mexico canada and our own country it just certainly is. It's a national security issue, and it's important going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's think about some of the threats. I, I know I kind of hinted at one of them earlier when I talked a bit about the commercial real estate. What are you kind of seeing as far as some of the big threats that, whether it's near term or longer term? You know, Dave and I have always talked about the possibility of a Fed policy error that, mm. you know, they're looking at rearview mirror data and they typically are too easy for too long and too restrictive for too long. And my concern is that the the biting effect or the lag effect of tighter monetary policy and high interest rates will suddenly crop up and they won't be prepared for it. And then they'll have to rush to cut rates. But just remember, when they start cutting rates, that not, isn't necessarily a good thing. If, it, if they're just trying to lower the rate to kind of go in line with what they see as inflationary trends, that's one thing. But if they're cutting it because they see weakness in the economy, typically the stock market does not bottom until we're well into a recession. And with the Atlanta Fed forecasting Q1 GDP growth of 4%, if mm-hmm. you can believe it, uh, it's hard to imagine we're going to have a recession in the first quarter. So they're going to keep those rates higher for longer. Powell has essentially intimated that. The bond market, however, doesn't really agree with the Fed. And typically the bond market is right, and the Fed ends up following the bond market, not the reverse. <laughs> yeah, I th- think that with uh, Chair Powell, with his press conference, he made it pretty clear that they're not going to cut rates in March. That And with the latest data that we've gotten, they really have no reason to. And if they are going to cut, it's... It's likely going to come after they start shrinking their balance sheet. And maybe this is more of a mid-2024 story for the cuts. And so, of course, we're going to have to check out what's the context around the cut, because context always matters. It's, that's totally true. And the, the other thing about it is, you know, we, we have had a very strong fourth quarter. As I mentioned earlier, we've pulled forward returns. And right now, the S&P is trading at about 20 times forward earnings. That's a very high multiple in the face of, you know, where, where interest rates are. The other, the other thing, too, is the bond market is attractive. 
So, you know, when you think about a positive real rate of return from bonds or CDs, that's competition for stocks. And that's why I believe that, you know, the equity markets until the election are probably going to go sideways with a lot of volatility. In terms of some of the economic data that I'm thinking about in terms of some of the threats, it would be about the Fed error idea that if they go later and slower than what the market continues to price in, that it does increase the risk that you're going to see some sort of uh, issue pop up, especially in the financial sector. You have the small regional banks uh, already under some stress with commercial real estate. Deposit flight is still a real thing and still happening with a lot of them. And the Fed has already announced that that bank term funding program that they created in March of 2023 to kind of help bail out the bank where they could get a bunch of funding, cheap funding for their treasury portfolios, that's expiring in March. So there are still a few things that I'm really kind of watching. Now, I don't want to say I'm worrying about them because I still think that from my perspective, the balance of risks is more towards the opportunities than towards the threats. But, you know, it does require some vigilance. Well, and then there's the geopolitical element, too. I mean, you know, the U.S. is on the verge of attacking Iranian installations in Syria and Lebanon, and if that conflict broadens, if, for example, there's something done to the streets of Hormuz to block traffic and so on, that could cause an uptick in inflation that the Fed will have no control over. In addition, we've started to see signs that some of the, the inflationary comps are going to get a little bit tougher. You know, the manufacturing sector was very weak all last year, and that's starting to perk up. We know there are supply chain difficulties with 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 uh, ships being rerouted around Africa and so on, that's going to be passed along to consumers. So as long as this economy remains at the, in the 3%, 4% zone and unemployment under 4%, I don't think they're going to be able to get anywhere close to their 2% target. Let's check our headline. What's our headline strength? You know, I, I think I'll take the headline strengths and uh, weaknesses while Derek focuses on opportunities and threats. Okay. And so I think the biggest strength is we're in a good place. Headline weakness? There are still some signs of stress, especially with those small regional banks with their commercial real estate exposure. Pivoting to Derek. Derek, what's our headline opportunity this week? I think our opportunity is to just maintain a balanced portfolio. Don't get over your skis in terms of your equity exposure and be sure you've taken a look at your portfolio because some segments of that portfolio have done extraordinarily well and others have lagged and perhaps you want to rebalance. Headline threat this week? To me, it's what's going on in the Middle East. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. That's episode 89. Brian Jacobs and Chief Economist. Thank you. Thank you. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Annex Wealth Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.